This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hi and welcome to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show here on Plains FM 96.9. My name is Louise and I'm an alcoholic. The purpose of this show is to increase public awareness of Alcoholics Anonymous as an effective means of recovery from the disease of alcoholism. Our show has two parts. First, we'll talk a bit about alcoholism, what it is and what AA can do to help. Then we'll interview a recovering alcoholic who is an active member of AA. I'm now going to ask our guest to read the AA preamble, which is read at the start of every AA meeting. My name is Anthony, and I'm an alcoholic. AA preamble. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organisation or institution. It does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any cause. Our prime purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. Thanks, Anthony. So what is alcoholism? Alcoholism is a disease, not a disgrace. There's no shame in having an illness or a disease. An unusual feature of this disease is that it will do whatever it can to convince you that you do not have it. However, once it has a hold of you, the progression of symptoms is like the classic disease model and the victim is as helpless as a sufferer of cancer. If you are an alcoholic, you're at the beginning of a long road that usually ends in one of three places – prisons, institutions or death. If you think this sounds dramatic, we can assure you that our collective experience has shown this to be true. The challenge is to convince the alcoholic to admit that they need help and become willing to seek it. Denial is a major symptom of alcoholism. The alcoholic is often the last one to recognise it and admit that they have it. Our definition of alcoholism, that it is an allergy of the body, coupled with an obsession of the mind. The allergy is the physical aspect of the disease. After having the first drink, the phenomenon of craving develops and we lose control over when we will stop drinking. The old saying is, one is too many and a thousand is never enough. And yet, because of the obsession of the mind, the mental aspect of the disease, the alcoholic is compelled to keep picking up the first drink. And this is what makes us powerless. We often hear from sober alcoholics that many doubted whether life could be fun without alcohol. Fortunately, those same people report that their lives have improved dramatically since they became sober. The 12-step program of recovery, which is discussed at meetings and which is outlined in the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book, is how we get sober and maintain our sobriety one day at a time. This program has a proven track record of helping otherwise hopeless alcoholics 
to achieve long-term sobriety and recovery. It has taught us how to enjoy life sober. Okay, for anyone who has just joined us, you're listening to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show here on Plains FM 96.9 and we're just about to interview an AA member who's going to share their experience with alcoholism. So let's meet our guest. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Would you you. like to uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about who you are? My name's Anthony and I'm an alcoholic. Um, Today I don't mind saying that. Anthony, tell us, how long have you been sober? Well, if I go back to the very period when I first um, stopped drinking, I um, it works out to be, this is my 30th year of sobriety. Wonderful, mm. wonderful. And, you know, of tell consistence us... consistency of sobriety, that is. And, and, and tell us about your life today. You've got a family? No, I don't have a family. Um, I've been married twice before. Mm-hmm. And I had two children from my mm-hmm. first marriage, and we're quite a bit estranged, so I mm-hmm. haven't seen them for many years. Mm-hmm. And there has been fleeting times when I've had an opportunity to talk to them, but they've not really shown any interest to go any further with that, so I've had to accept that. Uh, and I'm now married to my wife, Chrissy, who is also in the fellowship. Mm-hmm. And we have been married, we just celebrated our 25th anniversary, oh, silver anniversary, so yeah. Abs- oh, that's brilliant. And um, so we took, you, you know, childhood, you know, what it was like growing up. Uh, it all started way back uh, in my early formative years that I felt as a person that I didn't fit in. I felt quite shy Mm -hmm. and I also had a period of time that I had some illness as a child and I don't know whether that supported that or not. It's really quite irrelevant. The point was that I never felt as if I fitted in and as I grew up in my family, I was the youngest Mm. of um, three brothers and a sister Mm-hmm. And we lived uh, a, f- a fairly normal middle class family. My father didn't drink very much at all. My mother very little, and it was never a feature in the f- household. However, eventually I went to art school back in the seventies, and I first started to drink alcohol. And all of a sudden, that shyness and that fearing that I didn't fit in went away. Somehow it was sort of like an elixir <clears throat> and all of a sudden I was in amongst people who I felt that I fitted in with. They were artistic, we went to art school and we dabbled in a few other substances of course which was quite the norm at that period of time. It was going through the uh, hippie period <laughs> uh, and of course we all know the story of um, uh, uh, Bullshit and Jelly Beans which was written uh, by... Um, the mayor of uh, Invercargill, um, who was quite a radical, and I was quite radical in the end. But the point was, there was nothing really unusual other than the fact that when I did drink, before I went to functions or do's and I did drink, um, I wasn't very social. 
It wasn't convivial at all for me. For mm. me, it was a, a period of drinking and just sort of getting on to a different plane, a different level. It was like I wanted to withdraw more. And I would sit in the... I'm, I was the Elkie that sat, sat in the corner right. and just getting pissed, to be honest. Mm. And, of course, that seemed fine when I was young. And I could tolerate it. And little did I realise that over a period of time, those drinking sessions started to get closer and closer together. And I think that was one of the major turning points that mm. I realised that my drinking wasn't the same as everybody else. Okay, so you you know you talk about your drinking mm. through your teens and into your adulthood uh, and, and what it did for you. Mm. Uh, you know, describe more about your mental state, you know, either when mm. or when you weren't drinking. Mm. Right. Well, that's interesting because I think this is what really brought me to my knees was my mental state. I was one of those alcoholics that suffered from a lot of depression. Mm. And at various times through my adolescent teenage years, art school years and after that, I had had uh, numerous times when I was in, a, I went to a place called Calvary Psychiatric Hospital, which mm -hmm. was a, a private hospital mm -hmm. for those people that had nervous breakdowns and things like that. And that was in Caledonian Road, which was run by the Roman Catholic Church in those mm -hmm. days. Mm -hmm. And of course now it's been integrated into Southern Cross Hospital mm -hmm. complex. Um, but I, I had visited there a couple of times as an inpatient and then as an outpatient and that was because I was having severe depression mm. and um, nobody asked at all at the time was I drinking mm. and I found that there was a correlation between the two but they didn't pick it up at that stage. And so you, you've, you've explained your drinking uh, you know as being you knew it was alcoholic uh did you at any point think this is a problem or i want to stop well i didn't see it as being alcoholic because i really didn't understand the word alcoholic i i, I knew there was alcoholism mm. uh, but it was only fleeting uh, the real problem for me was the fact that um, my drinking was periodic mm. at first and when I stopped drinking, I would start the journey back into a lower state of mind until I drank again, and then I got relief. But those periods got closer together, and mm. it was getting to the stage where if I hadn't drink of alcohol, I didn't know what was going to happen. Mm. I was completely unpredictable. And there were times I'd say to myself, I won't have a drink. I don't need to have a drink. Right. I can, you know, I don't, I don't really need this. And then I would, something would happen and I might have had uh, something good happen and I'd think, oh, I can celebrate. That's not so bad. I, you know, I'm entitled to that. Or if something really went bad, I would feel that I just can't cope with this. I can't mm. handle this. So I'll have a drink. And that would bring my, it would delight me for a period of time. Mm. But of course, alcohol is a depressant. Mm. So that only lasts for a short period of time. So the first drink may have done that, but of course I never stopped at the first mm. drink. No. And before I knew it, I was in a period of blackout or I couldn't remember what was happening. 
other consequences. So, so obviously there's that mental, mm. emotional stuff. But you know, was, was there any problems with the law? Did you lose any jobs? I I lost numerous jobs, mm. um, or I left them before mm. I was asked to leave. Um, and it wasn't so much the fact that I was incompetent, it was the fact that I knew that my behaviour was getting more and more um, erratic in that and that they couldn't rely on me. Mm. Um, so I never actually got fired because of my drinking mm. as such. Uh, like my two marriage breakups, mm. they weren't directly resulted from my drinking, but other than my behaviour, my depression mm. and so forth. But, of course, um, I can't remember any of my, my, my first partner, my first wife, uh, unfortunately passed away um, about a year ago and she never stopped drinking. So mm. we were in a drinking-type relationship mm-hmm. which was feeding upon itself. Mm. And mm. when that broke up, um, it was particularly a necromonious uh, breakup. And in the second marriage... Um, I thought that things would be different. This is a different person, different type <laughs> of person. She didn't drink at all, and she was a lovely person. But um, as far as me coping with life and holding down jobs, uh, it just didn't work. Mm. And, of course, the alcohol was always there in the background. Mm. So so describe what you know we often refer to as our rock bottom what was it that made you realise something's got to change? <laughs> well, after the second marriage broke up, um, because there was no children involved, it was pretty well straightforward. Uh, and I just proceeded to drink and I became a daily drinker. Mm-hmm. And I was at home in a flat and I had a job and... They, I just decided that that job wasn't going to suit me, so I stopped working, and I just continued drinking. Mm. And uh, people knocked on my door uh, one morning and saw that I wasn't in a particularly bad way, mm. and they sent me into the hospital, and they sent me into Ferguson Clinic. And I stayed there for about a week before they screened me and they said to me then, um, to be really honest, you're a chronic alcoholic and you Mm -hmm. need to stop drinking before we could even see whether there's any other mental health issues. How how did did that make you feel to hear that? (laughs) I'll be really blatant because um, the male nurse at the time, uh, very incorrect procedure, turned around and said to me when I was going through um, shakes and sweats Mm -hmm. and going through withdrawal and seeing delusions and that, he actually said to me, if you're so if clever, how come you're here? (laughs) Because I was still one of these people that thought I had the answer and I knew what was happening Mm -hmm. and I didn't. And that was a real, that was a wake up call. All of a sudden I realised that all my knowledge and all my understanding, Mm. all the baffledness, you know, Mm. baffling idea, trying to work it out, realised that at the end of the day, I'm sitting in a hospital where I can't go out. Mm. I'm locked up. 
So what led you to your first AA meeting? Okay, well, I went through Mahu after Ferguson. I went to Mahu Clinic, which was in um, Sunnyside or, or Hillmorton Hospital at the time before it closed, uh, the Mahu Clinic. And I was there for um, quite a few months mm-hmm. and as a day patient, and they suggested you need to go to AA. And so I rang up. And a man said, you come and collect me. And he took me to my first meeting. And the amazing thing was that I couldn't believe that these people had nice cars or (laughs) had wives or had jobs. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And they had smiles on their faces Mm. and twinkles in their eyes. And I thought, I want some of that. There's something different here. You know, my church didn't do it. Other people didn't do it, wives didn't do it, children didn't do it, and yet there was something there that told me that there is a solution. There's some hope. There is some hope, and that was the hope I had. Wow. And so tell us about how you've managed to stay sober. You know, you've got 30 years now of continuous sobriety. Describe that process of recovery. Well, those first four few years were the most difficult, and I didn't have a job. Um, the welfare department wouldn't pay my benefit into a bank account because I had a bad record, so my mother used to pick it up, or alternately, mm-hmm. I used to get it through the Salvation Army. They, mm-hmm. would, you, they would give it there, and they would give it out to me, and I'd pay my rent, and it was divided up accordingly, and I had debts. So it was a pretty grim period, mm. but the thing was that I was going to meetings once or twice a day. Wow. I didn't have a vehicle. I'd lost all that. Mm-hmm. I had nothing, absolutely nothing. Nothing from the marriage, no money left, nothing. And um, I ended up meeting uh, one or two nice people in AA, the similar to me, and I used to walk from Sydenham into town to go to the meetings at the art centre, in the mm-hmm. old art centre in those days. Or I'd go to the, the rooms, which were upstairs uh, at one stage. I think they were in Armagh Street upstairs mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. They used to have their own rooms. And I just immersed myself mm-hmm. in, into the program. Well, I wasn't into the program. It was in, in, into that feeling that I felt part of something for once in my life without the need to take a drink. And, um, you know, we talk about suggested, uh, you know, parts of the program around sponsorship, Mm -hmm. the steps, service. What does that mean or look like for you? Well, a year after I got out of Mahu, I went to Hamna. And I was able to work on personal issues and see how the program really worked in your life as a... um, Good orderly direction, we'll Mm -hmm. call it good orderly direction at that stage. Um, And I could see that there, with the steps, it gave me an opportunity to really look into what was happening to Anthony inside. Mm. And I realised that there was a hollowness inside me. And by going to meetings and working the steps right from the very beginning, I, I just had, I like a sponge. I just read everything. Mm. I read all the AA books. I read the big book. Everything's in the big book. 
Mm. The only thing I needed was in the big book, but I still read all the other literature mm. as well in the big book. And I just soaked it up, and I just loved it. Uh, um, I, I just found that I wasn't picking up a drink. And, and so, you know, how would you describe your life today? Peaceful. Mm. At ease. There's nowhere near the anxiety anymore. I don't worry about things the same as I used to. In my sobriety, I've lost both parents and made mm. amends to them. Mm-hmm. I've been fortunate for that. And the things I haven't been able to control or make amends for, I know I can rest in peace knowing that I am prepared to. Mm. And that's given me a comfort to know Mm. that something greater than myself is behind me. And I'm retired now. I I mean, I I never said it before, but um, at one stage 10, 15 years ago, I went back to university and I became a clinician. And I worked in the very places that mm. I'd actually been locked up in. Wow. So I retired from that profession. And uh, I still fully involved in AA mm. in passing the message on. And, and you briefly touched on, um, you know, AA is described as a spiritual program, not a religious program. Mm. What does that mean for you? Well, I grew up at a church school. Um, I didn't have a bad um, experience of that. Um, God didn't worry me. Mm-hmm. But the God of my understanding was like a childlike God. Mm-hmm. All things bright and beautiful in that, and, and it wasn't reality. The God that I got introduced to, the spiritual side of AA, was something far more sustaining and mature. Mm. and I still call it more a power greater than myself, Mm. whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And I don't follow any dogma Mm. any longer. So it's very important because I see in an AA group and a sharing in that, that that to me is the voice of love, of the voice of God, of my understanding. Mm. And that's why I keep going to meetings Mm. because I still don't know the answers. Mm. (laughs) And there's always people further ahead than me and new people coming Mm. in, they all can still teach me Mm. no matter where they are in their program. So, Anthony, what would you recommend to someone who's listening who think they might have a problem? What could they ask themselves? I believe that most people that are asking that question already know. Mm. And all I can say is the willingness and honesty. Mm. If you have that, give it a give it a try. Mm. Just give it a try. And before you know it, you may find something changes Mm. for the better. It doesn't wipe away all the pain, but it helps you to deal with the pain Mm. without the need to try and anesthetize yourself Mm. through drugs and alcohol. Mm. So the program does that for you. Mm. gives you a sense of purpose. It's beautiful. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story. You're very welcome.
So for our listeners, if you've related to anything you've heard or would like some more information about Alcoholics Anonymous, you can look us up on the web at www.aa.org.nz or call us on 0800 AA Works. There are over 60 meetings a week in Canterbury, so it's likely there's one near you. Join us next week to hear from more AA members sharing their experiences. Our show airs every Monday at 5.30pm and repeats on Wednesday at 12.30pm. You can also find podcasts of our past shows on the Plains FM website at plainsfm.org.nz or you can download, subscribe and listen to podcasts on iTunes and Spotify. That brings us to the end of the show. Thank you for listening and remember, if you want to drink, that's your business. But if you want to stop, we can help. You don't have to do it alone. We will now close the show with the serenity prayer, as we do in every AA meeting. God, God grant, grant me, me the, the serenity, serenity to accept the things, the things I cannot change, change courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. You've been listening to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show on Plains FM 96.9. 